This is VOA News via remote. I'm Tommy McNeil. North Korean leader Kim Jong-un is stressing that his country will never abandon the nuclear weapons and missile it needs to counter hostilities from the United States. He accuses the U.S. of pushing a pressure campaign aimed at weakening the North's defenses and eventually collapsing his government. State media said Friday the North Korea's rubber stamp parliament also passed a law that requires North Korea's military to automatically execute nuclear strikes against enemy forces if its leadership comes under attack. Kim also addressed domestic issues in his speech, saying that North Korea would begin its long-delayed rollout of COVID-19 vaccines in November. He did not give specifics. Queen Elizabeth II, Britain's longest reigning monarch, has died at the age of 96. She spent seven decades on the throne since February 6, 1952. As the UK rebuilt from war, lost an empire, transformed its economy, and both entered and left the European Union. Meanwhile, Prince Charles has been preparing to be king his entire life. Now, his moment has in fact arrived. Following the death of his mother, Queen Elizabeth II, Charles is now the oldest person to take the British throne. No date has been set for the coronation of King Charles III, but Charles does face the enormous challenge of building the same sort of affection that characterized the relationship between his mother and the British public. Will will Charles be loved by his subjects like his mother was? It is a question that has overshadowed his entire life. Again, Prince Charles uh, now uh, preparing to ascend the throne after his mother, Queen Elizabeth II, has died. More at voanews.com. This is VOA News. Shelling has resumed in the area of Ukraine's huge nuclear power plant. Russian and Ukrainian officials blamed each other. The attacks on Wednesday come a day after the U.N. Atomic Watchdog Agency pressed for the warring sides to carve out a safe zone at the plant to prevent a catastrophe. A Ukrainian regional governor said Russians fired on a city on the opposite bank of a river from the plant. Russian authorities said that the city where the power plant is located is in a blackout because Ukrainian shelling damaged a power substation. In the east and south, Ukrainian officials reported progress in their counteroffensive. The head of Ukraine's atomic energy operator accused Russia on Thursday of trying to steal Europe's largest nuclear plant by cutting it off from the Ukrainian electricity grid and leaving it on the brink of radiation disaster. The Zaporizhia nuclear power plant has been without an outside source of electricity since Monday and receives power for its own safety systems from the only one of its six reactors that remains operational. U.S. officials are considering broadening recommendations for who gets vaccinated against monkeypox. Uh, That could possibly include many men with HIV or those recently diagnosed with other sexually transmitted diseases. Driving the discussion is a study released Thursday. It showed that a higher than expected share of monkeypox infections are in people with other sexually transmitted infections. One official at the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says the report represents a call to action. Currently, the CDC recommends that the vaccine to people who are a close contact of someone who has monkeypox or who believe they were exposed to the virus. 
The U.S. Justice Department is preparing to appeal a judge's decision to name an independent arbiter to review records seized by the FBI from former U.S. President Donald Trump's Florida home. The department has also asked U.S. District Judge Eileen Cannon to put on hold her directive prohibiting it from using the seized records in its criminal investigation while it contests her ruling to a federal appeals court. Cannon's Monday order has the likely impact of slowing the pace of the investigation into the presence of classified documents in Mar-a-Lago. Law enforcement officials said in the filing Thursday that they would suffer irreparable harm if Cannon's directive remained in place. Recapping our top story, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un is now stressing his country will never abandon the nuclear weapons and missiles it needs to counter hostilities from the United States. Via remote, I'm Tommy McNeil, VOA News. Africa. Welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm James Butt in Washington. Today is Friday, September 9th, and here are some of the stories we are covering. The world remembers the late Queen Elizabeth II of Great Britain, who passed away on Thursday at age 96. The history is still alive because Kenyans feel that it is in this country that she started her reign as queen. We will have an obituary of the late queen. President-elect William Ruto's alliance controls both houses of parliament in Kenya. COVID-19 threatens the resurgence of the deathly meningitis in Africa. Who is threatening the life of Uganda's Speaker of Parliament? I raise that issue in good faith, and I want Ugandans to know anything that happens to me, I have got assassination threat. And British police arrest a suspected Liberian war criminal. We will speak with a Liberian war crimes monitor. Those stories plus Samse O'Malley's posts are coming up on Daybreak Africa. Britain's Queen Elizabeth II has died at the age of 96 at her residence in Scotland. She was Britain's longest-serving monarch and this year celebrated 70 years on the throne. Henry Richwell looks back on the life of one of the world's most respected heads of state. Queen Elizabeth II was the only monarch many of the British people alive today have ever known, a symbol of her nation, its empire and its commonwealth. She personified British strength and character long before she even knew she would be queen. I declare before you all that my whole life, whether it be long or short, shall be devoted to your service and to the service of our great imperial family to which we all belong. In 1947, on her 21st birthday, she gave a televised address on her first overseas tour in South Africa. That same year, she married the Greek-born Prince Philip. At 25, Elizabeth ascended to the throne after the death of her father, George VI. She saw a thorough transformation of society and technology during her reign of more than seven decades, a time in which she warned about the dangers of throwing away ageless ideals while embracing the advantages of new inventions. She sent out her first tweet in 2014. There are few records she did not break. She was the world's longest reigning monarch. Author and royal analyst Richard Fitzwilliams. 
As head of the Commonwealth, the Queen has links with the past. Sometimes it's a past that's difficult to come to terms with because you think of empire, you think of colonial exploitation, for example. But so far as the Queen is concerned, you think of her dedication to the organisation. She represented Britain in friendships with those who held in common the British values of freedom, equality and democracy. And with dignity, she faced those who did not. The Queen was not immune to criticism in her own country. Some targeted her as a symbol of an institution out of place in a postmodern, neoliberal and democratic world and a burden on the British taxpayer. The death of the popular Princess Diana was an opportunity for her critics who accused her of being coldly slow to react. When she did address the nation, it was heartfelt. What I say to you now, as your Queen and as a grandmother, I say from my heart. First, I want to pay tribute to Diana myself. She was an exceptional and gifted human being. The marriage of her grandson, Prince William, to Kate Middleton brought youthful glamour to the ancient institution. When Prince Harry married American actor Meghan Markle, Elizabeth was at the head of a family that appeared to move with the times popular, diverse and global. But there were painful times ahead. Her second son, Prince Andrew, was investigated for links to a convicted child sex offender. Harry and Meghan fell out with the royal family amid accusations of racism. The passing of Elizabeth's husband, Prince Philip, in 2021, left an enduring image, a queen mourning alone as the coronavirus pandemic swept across her nation. In September, she appointed the 15th Prime Minister of her reign, her last major public engagement. Queen Elizabeth remains a giant in the history of one of the planet's great nations, a bridge between Britain's colonial past and its future as a global player in a world vastly different from the one she was born in. Visiting Germany in 2015, she spoke of the vast changes she had witnessed. In our lives, Mr President, we have seen the worst, but also the best of our continent. We have witnessed how quickly things can change for the better. But we know that we must work hard to maintain the benefits of the post-war world. Britain's royal tradition, of which Elizabeth was a steward, is now in the hands of her heirs as Charles prepares to ascend to the throne. The Britain they inherit is a drastically different one in terms of demographics, culture and economics. In a globalised, pluralistic world, their job of projecting an image of greatness is no less complicated. Henry Ridgewell for VOA News, London. The world is remembering Queen Elizabeth II of Great Britain, who passed away yesterday Thursday at age 96. Gabriel Mutuma is a Kenyan policy and governance analyst. He tells me that Kenyans feel a special connection to the late queen because it was in Kenya that she learned that she would become queen following the death of her father. He joins us now from Nairobi. Good morning, James, and uh, let me begin by saying everybody in Kenya is saddened by the news from the passing of this amazing, great, great head of the monarch, Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth. As you can imagine, the significance that she holds in this great nation of ours. So it is actually a very sad day for everyone. 
and uh, everyone wants to get to mourn her in the best way they remember her. I think many people have come of age now, apart from the young people, who remember her visit when she visited Kenya back in the day. And, uh, you know, everybody has followed the history of Queen Elizabeth, Her Majesty, and it's huge. I mean, it brings in a lot of relevance. You can remember this mere fact that uh, she took on her reigns as queen in this country way back in 1952 in the Abadea very place that now has become synonymous with Her Majesty Reign. And that was the Abadeas, the Treetops Hotel, after learning the passing of her father, the late King George VI. I mean, and if you go there, it's a, it brings a historic relevance because people go there now, people go to the Abadeas, and in particular that location, to remember. And the history is still alive because Kenyans feel that it is in this country that she started her reign as queen. And as you can see, for 70 years, she has carried that symbolism with a lot of grace and honors. In addition to her reign beginning in Kenya, she's also played a role for the Commonwealth of Nations. What can you tell us? Indeed, again, James, you're very right. She has been a symbol of unity among the Commonwealth nations. The importance that she has brought throughout over the years has also marked a major milestone and symbolism in most of the things that these countries have accomplished. For instance, you may remember the negotiation of uh, bringing down the debts that uh, these Commonwealth countries had owed to the West and the East. And uh, I think it was it marked a significant role when she became the vanguard of major support towards that milestone. It cannot be overemphasized on the role that the Commonwealth has played, and in particular, the Commonwealth Secretariat in Nairobi, the significance that it has played in matters agriculture, in matters uh, environment, uh, in matters mining, and all these other things that, you know, has uh, brought the light into the Commonwealth Secretariat. It cannot be overemphasized, notwithstanding the bringing together of these nations. We just concluded just the other day, I think it's two weeks or three weeks ago, where we concluded the Commonwealth Games in Birmingham. A symbol, you know, that marks the unity of these great countries. It was just the other day we have just remembered it has been uh, playing on our TVs and radios and all of the social media. She just celebrated her jubilee. All of these are amazing milestones of her legacy towards sport to keep together these integral nations or Commonwealth. Gabriel, thank you so much for your reflections on the passing of Queen Elizabeth. Thank you so much. It's always an honor, James. Gabriel Mutuma is a Kenyan policy and governance analyst. He was speaking with us from the Kenyan capital, Nairobi. In Kenya, President-elect William Ruto's Kenya-Kwanzaa coalition has taken control of both the Senate and National Assembly. This after the Azimio La Umoja coalition opted out of the race, leaving Ruto's team to thrive. Wiper party leader Kalonzo Musioka, who was contesting for the post of Senate Speaker, changed his mind at the 11th hour in a letter addressed to the Senate clerk. Maureen Ojiambo reports. After the swearing-in ceremony for both the senators and members of parliament, it was time to elect the speakers. During the exercise, as Miola Umoja and Kenya Coalition members raised concerns, among them nominated members not being allowed to participate in the exercise citing discrimination. Efforts from the members to have the Senate speaker election postponed were futile. At the same time, the Senate clerk received a letter from the leader of the Wiper Democratic Party, Kalonzo Musioka, 
asking to withdraw from the race. Homer Bay Senator Moses Kajuang and other leaders led the Azmio team to walk out of the house as they raised concerns over the lack of integrity. Join the House to allow the nominated senators to put in their applications and the clerk has dismissed us on a technicality. And we thought that that was not fair and we felt that all senators are equal. There is no way that the position of deputy speaker can then be reserved through trickery for only the elected senators at the exclusion of nominated senators. Number two... We have also raised issues around the integrity of some of the candidates who presented themselves. Musioka, who was contesting against the former Kilifi governor, Emerson Kingi, did not give clear reasons for opting out. Speaking after the swearing-in, Kingi said he will lead the team without discrimination. Honorable senators, I'm profoundly humbled and overwhelmed by the great honor and privilege you have bestowed upon me by electing me as the speaker as your speaker of the 4th Senate and the 13th Parliament of the Republic of Kenya. At the same time, former Bungoma Senator Moses Wetangula sailed through to clinch the National Assembly Speaker seat. This as the former Speaker Kenneth Marende withdrew from the race after Wetangula beat him in the first round of voting. However, none of them met the threshold, forcing them to go for the second round, where Wetangula was declared the winner after Marende informed the clerk that he had considered defeat. I, Moses Francis Masika Wetangula, having been elected as Speaker of the National Assembly, do swear in the name of the Almighty God that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the people and the Republic of Kenya, that I will faithfully and conscientiously discharge my duties as Speaker of the National Assembly, it was a battle that has ended in favor of President-elect William Ruto, as now he has control of all the houses. It's a wrap-up for the election period in Kenya, as Ruto is expected to be sworn in on Tuesday 13th as the fifth president of Kenya. Reporting for VOS Daybreak Africa, I am Maureen Wijembo in Nairobi, Kenya. listening to Daybreak Africa on the Voice of America. I'm James Barton, Washington. Today is Friday, September 9th. Still to come on our program, Samson O'Malley Sports. Uganda's Speaker of Parliament says her life is in danger following assassination threats. Anita Among is asking the government to intervene and investigate the matter to ensure her life is protected. Reporter Mugumi Davis Rakarinji has more from Kampala. Speaker Anita Mong told Parliament Thursday she has on several occasions been trailed by non-vehicles. Without providing further details, she said she had earlier shared her fears with the leader of the opposition. I raised that issue in good faith, and I want Ugandans to know anything that happens to me, I have got assassination threat. Among said she's worried not only for herself, but for ordinary Ugandans as well. She said the government should take keen interest in the matter. Honorable Prime Minister, what is happening? And start with even mine. Because it's not a hearsay. It is not a hearsay. Follow it up with the Minister of Internal Affairs. In March, Among was elected as Speaker of Parliament at the death of then Speaker Jacob Olanya. She's a member of the ruling National Resistance Movement, ONRM. Uganda's Prime Minister, Robin Anabanja, promised the government will look into the matter. 
She said the speaker's life is safe. God is there to protect you. Nothing will happen to you. Nothing will happen to her. We are going to be for security. We are in charge of this government. Anita Monk said she will not be intimidated and will continue to serve the government. In the past, unknown guard men have assassinated some top government officials and clerics. The government has always promised, but never came up with an exhaustive report on the killings. Ugandan President Yoelim Seven has on several occasions condemned the death on people he termed as terrorists. For VOA News, I am Mugume, Davis Rwakarindin Kampala, Uganda. The World Health Organization is warning of a resurgence of deadly meningitis in Africa because COVID-19 has disrupted life-saving vaccination campaigns. Lisa Schlein reports for VOA from Geneva. The near elimination of the deadly form of meningitis type A in Africa is one of the continent's biggest health success stories. Over the last 12 years, about 350 million Africans have received a single dose of menafravac, a vaccine designed specifically for the African meningitis belt. The WHO Regional Director for Africa, Machidiso Mweti, says not a single case of meningitis group A has been reported on the continent in the past five years. Now, however, the COVID-19 pandemic has delayed vaccination campaigns targeting more than 50 million African children, raising the risk that these gains will be reversed. In addition, major outbreaks caused by meningitis group C have been recorded in seven of the African sub-Saharan meningitis belt countries in the past nine years. She notes a four-month outbreak last year in the Democratic Republic of Congo claimed more than 200 lives. François-Marc Laforce is Director of Technical Services for Serum Institute of India. He played a pivotal role in the development of the Manafravac vaccine at the Serum Institute nearly two decades ago. Besides meningitis group C, he says Africa currently is contending with residual outbreaks of other forms of meningitis. A new vaccine, again specifically designed for the African meningitis belt, will uh, hopefully be pre-qualified later this year or early next year. But this vaccine holds the promise of finishing what Manafravac began, such that Africa may be the first continent to be free of meningitis epidemics. Meningitis is caused by inflammation of the membranes that surround the brain and spinal cord. Acute bacterial meningitis can cause death within 24 hours. Young children are most at risk. About half the cases and deaths occur in children under age five. The World Health Organization launched a new strategy Thursday to defeat bacterial meningitis in the African region by 2030. The plan calls for shoring up diagnosis, surveillance, care, and vaccination. WHO estimates $1.5 billion will be needed to implement the plan between now and 2030. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. British police said this week that they arrested a Liberian man on suspicion of committing war crimes during the country's civil war nearly 30 years ago. The French news agency AFP says authorities did not identify the Liberian man. 
said to be in his 40s. Authorities suspect he may be connected to committing war crimes and crimes against humanity. Hassan Billiti is director of the Liberia-based Global Justice and Research Project. His organization has been working with international human rights organizations to identify former Liberian warlords and alleged war criminals. He tells me that he will not identify the individual because of the British government policy not to reveal the names of suspected criminals until after they have been charged. We have been working in other cases with the British authorities. We've been working with jurisdictional authorities in other countries, especially Western Europe, North America. However, we do not know, and the Brits have not told us anything, so we can't speculate. But I want you to remember, under the British law, a suspect will not be named until he is charged. So we do not know for a fact. But I do know that we've done some work with the jurisdiction authorities in the UK, in France, in Switzerland, in the Netherlands, in uh, Finland, in the United States and other places. But uh, Hassan, your organization made referrals to the British government? Unfortunately, at this point, I'm not prepared to make a comment on that. We have been working on some cases with uh, the UK and other people. But unfortunately, I know how much people want to know this information. It is not our organization that made the arrest. So I cannot disclose anything with respect to that. We ourselves are awaiting comments from the Met Police in the UK. It will be inappropriate professionally for me to make any comment either insinuating that or suggesting that. Your pursuit for accountability for war criminals, do you find that it is gaining steam or it is losing steam? Absolutely. In Liberia, it is gaining more steam. More and more Liberians are very much interested in seeing this come through. And now foreign partners as well, representatives of different European and American governments, I believe, are also getting more and more interested. The difficulty we have is our government, specifically the legislature, which is taxed with the responsibility of making the laws and creating courts. So that's where I think our problems are right now. Hassan Billiti is director of the Liberia-based Global Justice and Research Project. He was speaking with us from the Liberian capital, Monrovia. Stand now for Daybreak Africa Sports. And here is Samson O'Malley in Abuja, Nigeria. A very good Friday morning to you, Samson. Good Friday morning to you too, James. We begin the sport with the CAF Super Cup scheduled to be played this weekend in Rabat, Morocco. The CAF Super Cup Final 2022 will be played on Saturday at the Prince Mwale Abdella Stadium by two Moroccan clubs, Wydad Athletic Club, winners of the CAF Champions League, and RS Bakane, the CAF Confederations Cup champions. This is Wydad's fourth final. The goal level with Raja Casablanca for the most Super Cup final appearances for 
for a Moroccan team. No country has had more different clubs reaching the Super Cup final than Morocco with six appearances in addition to Wada Casablanca, Raja Casablanca, RS Bakani and Maghreb FEZ. Staying with CAF competition, the official draw for the CAF Women's Champions League 2022 will take place on Friday, the 9th of September at the Mohamed Sikh's Technical Center in Rabat, Morocco. Eight teams will participate in the tournament scheduled to take place from the 31st of October 2022 to the 13th of November 2022 in Morocco, a country which hosted the Women's African Cup of Nations last July. The participating teams will represent all the six zonal unions. In the meantime, the 2022-2023 CAF Champions League season kicks off this weekend with the first leg fixtures of the first preliminary round taking place across the continent. A total of 24 matches will be played this weekend except for the match between Elect Sport of Chad and Zamalek of Egypt which will be played on the 18th of September at the Amado Hydro Stadium in Yaoundé. Al-Hotli of Egypt, Osporons of Tunisia, Memelodi Sundowns of South Africa, Raja Club Athletic of Morocco, TP Mezembe of DR Congo, Wadak Athletic Club of Morocco have all received a bye to play in the second preliminary round. And now to athletics, where the three-day Africa Zone 5 anti-doping workshop, which began on Wednesday the 7th of September, will wind down on Friday the 9th of September in Kampala, Lesotho, South Sudan, Egypt, Tanzania, Burundi, Kenya, Rwanda, Ethiopia, Eritrea, Somalia, Sudan and host Uganda are among participants who are taking part in the anti-doping educators training of trainers program, which is aimed at ensuring a clean state of sport in the region and the African continent at large. The training is supported by the Ugandan Olympic Committee, Olympic Solidarity, Africa Zone 5 and the World Anti-Doping Association. Staying with athletics, Nigeria's Tobia Muson clinched the women's 100 meters hurdles at the Diamond League in Zurich on Thursday. She finished 12.29 seconds to defend her Diamond League title. Tia Jones from the U.S. trailed her after coming in in 12.40 seconds, while Jamaica's Brittany Anderson ended third. And that's it on Daybreak Africa Sports. I am Samson O'Malley in Abuja, Nigeria. It's back to you, James, in Washington. Thank you, Santi, and have a nice weekend. And that's it for this Friday, September 9th edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for spending your week with us. For more Africa news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. I'm James Barton in Washington wishing you a great weekend. We'll see you again on Monday.